invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be walking through the pages of Colossians this summer. At least that's my intention. If God has other plans, we're open to that, aren't we? Hello, this is live up here. This is not a video. I'm actually here. Blink, I'm still here. So if God has other plans, we're open to that, aren't we? Thank you for your participation. I want to talk to you about hope this morning, our heavenly hope. What does the word hope mean to you? When you hear the word hope, what do you think about? I heard a radio DJ on a Christian radio station was quoting a cynic that said, hope is nothing more than delayed disappointment. That's sad if that's your hope, if, if you have nothing more than that to hope in. Now, in the South, we use the word wrongly occasionally. If somebody says, hey, will you meet me at church this Sunday? And that person says, well, I hope so. What does that mean? They're not coming. <laughs> so hope means way more than that, and we're going to get into that as we unpack that. Where is your hope? How many of you watched the NFL draft this weekend? I'm not a big NFL fan. I much prefer college football, but I did watch the draft, mainly to see where Trevor Lawrence went. Did you notice anybody in the crowd when they announced the, Nash the Jacksonville Jaguars pick the T-shirt with this picture on it? Anybody notice that? It was a green T-shirt, and under it, it had the word hope. What are they saying? They're saying, last year we were 1-15. in 15. Anything is an improvement. We got a new coach, a new quarterback, now a new running back, a new uh, offensive, defensive players we got in the draft. Their hope apparently is in Trevor Lawrence. And I'm not slamming Trevor Lawrence, but I want to say this. If that's where your hope for eternity is placed, you're in big trouble. Our hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So let me read this passage from the letter of Paul to the Colossians, the church at Colossae. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope, there's the word, hope, laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as it has in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since you, the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Paul. Paul. Why does Paul start the letter that way? All of his letters, he wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Typically, the first word of a letter from Paul was the word Paul. <laughs> you know, we don't do that. We sign the letter at the end of the letter. Wouldn't it be nice if it was a long letter, if they just tell you up front who they are so you don't have to flip the pages? That's the cool thing about email now. At least email, when you open an email, you know who it's from. You don't have to read to the end of the email. You know by their title who it's from. Well, Paul had some explaining to do. Paul had never, apparently had never been in Colossae. We'll find out in this letter that Epaphras was a disciple, probably a convert of Paul, that had started the church in Colossae. And so Paul is explaining who he is. He's explaining by what authority do you have. If you get a letter from the Apostle Paul at the church, maybe your question would be, who are you to be writing us a letter? Especially one instructing us. And so Paul starts off by saying, I'm Paul. But he, more than that, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
An apostle was a delegate. It was one sent. It was one sent with the full authority of the one who sent them. So what Paul's saying is the letter I'm writing to you comes from the authority of my apostleship, but it's really the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Again, Paul's saying, I'm not self-appointed. I didn't make this up. I didn't, we didn't take a vote among men. I've been appointed by God to be an apostle, not by my will, but by his will. In fact, if you think about Paul, what did Paul used to do? Paul used to persecute the church. In fact, I don't know about you, but if I'm in the first century church and I hear Paul's coming, I may be a little scared, you know, to start with until you get gained. Hey, he's not Saul anymore. Now he's Paul. He's not a persecutor of the church. He's a promoter of the church, a promoter of the gospel. So Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then he mentions Timothy, our brother. So apparently Timothy was with him. Scholars believe this was written from prison, probably Rome, but certainly a prison epistle, and Timothy's with him. Timothy's not an apostle. Timothy's a brother, and he writes to the saints. Who are the saints? If you're a child of God, you're a saint. Did you know that? Part of the funeral last week is you can go online now and make comments to the funeral home that the family can read about the funeral. And, and people are, have right intentions, but what they end up saying is, well, heaven needs another angel. You ever heard that? Let me give you some good news. When you go to heaven, you're not going to be an angel. All the angels that ever needed to be created have already been created. God doesn't need another one in heaven. In fact, God really doesn't need you. He wants you. It's really better than him needing you. He wants you. So we're not angels, we're saints. You become a saint the day you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so Paul refers to the Christians at Colossae as saints. So look at your wife or husband right now and say, I'm a saint. <laughs> Hopefully you won't get an argument from them, but you're a saint if you're a child of God. And don't say it if you're not a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, but if you are, you're a saint. In fact, the word Christian, Paul doesn't use, in the first century was a term of derision. Did you know that? The heathen making fun of Christians would call them Christians. It literally meant little Christ, Christ ones. And so Paul doesn't use that. He uses a more accurate term, and that is saints. By the will of God and Timothy, the letters coming from Timothy, our brother, to the saints, and faithful brethren who are in Christ at Colossae. Colossae is now in modern-day Turkey. There's not a lot there. You can go online and look at a YouTube video of them starting to excavate Colossae. But it just was kind of insignificant. It had been of prominence earlier in the Old Testament, but by the time of Christ and certainly by the time of this letter, it was on a decline. really wasn't a lot at Colossae. It was probably the, the least significant church that Paul wrote to. And so that's, that's Colossae. And he says two things to him: Grace to you and peace. Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. Eleven of the letters he starts the exact same way, grace and peace. His letters to 1 and 2 Timothy adds the word mercy, so essentially grace, mercy, and peace. So this is important greeting from Paul, grace, kind of a New Testament concept. What does grace mean? It means God's undeserved favor. It means receiving something you couldn't earn, There's no way you could earn it. In fact, I've heard people say, well, I don't deserve grace. You're exactly right. We don't have grace because we've deserved it, because we've earned it, because we did anything to attain it. It's grace. It's free from God. In fact, it's a distinction from every other religion. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. So grace and then peace. Grace is more of a New Testament concept. Peace was certainly an Old Testament concept. Who knows the word in the Old Testament for peace? I didn't hear you. Shalom back to you. What does that mean? It means peace. Jerusalem. 
city of peace or place of peace. So if you got it, I couldn't hear because I, you're too far away. You notice we cut out a lot of the back rows. In case we're going to have to cut some more back rows out, just force everybody to the front. If we had enough staff, what we do is just put one row in. As it fills up, we put another row. No, you be comfortable. Thanks for spacing out. I'm just kidding. But grace and peace to you, that's Paul's usual greeting. And who's it coming from? It's coming from God the Father. So he gives us this grace-filled greeting. Then he gives a thankful prayer. Wouldn't you love to get a letter like this? Wouldn't you love to get a letter like this from the Apostle Paul? Well, we have it. It's called Colossians. In fact, there's 13 of them in the New Testament. Ask God to apply those to your life. But here's the letter. He says, first of all, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you ever since we heard of your faith. So what Paul's saying is every time you come to mind, church, we thank God for you. Wouldn't that be great if your church got that kind of letter from somebody of the standing of the Apostle Paul that every time you come to mind, your prayer is going to be, I hope I come to mind every day. Do you have anybody that prays for you like that? Don't raise your hand, but just think about it. I do. I'm going to share a brief synopsis here in just a minute. Praying for you always, ever since we heard. Well, how is Paul hearing? He's hearing from Epaphras. If Paul's in Rome, Colossae is over a thousand miles away by land and sea. So how in the world does Epaphras get to Paul to tell him about the church at Colossae? And apparently that's what he's done. And he's got some concern that he's expressing about what's going on in the church. I'll talk about that in a minute. But a thousand miles. We're not talking about something you can do in a day. There aren't, aren't airplanes. Epaphras had to walk down to the, to the coast, get on a boat, go over to an island, get on the, another boat perhaps or the same boat after docking there and going on over and then trudging countryside to Rome. We're talking weeks and weeks and weeks. But Paul said when Epaphras came, he's telling us about your faith and your love of the brethren. But why has Epaphras come? Well, he's concerned. You're going to hear this as we unpack the message of Colossians. There's heresy around the church that's trying to infiltrate the church. And here's the bottom line on the heresy. The cross isn't enough. Here's the heresy that's invading the churches that Paul wrote to in the New Testament. It wasn't just Colossae. In fact, he says it towards the end of the book. He said, share this in Laodicea. It's not too far away. Make sure this letter gets to them too. And while, while you're at it, won't you read the one I sent them? That's what Paul's saying. So the cross is not enough. So what does that mean? They're saying, yeah, Jesus is fine, but you need to add something to Jesus. Listen, what Jesus did on the cross was enough, and you can take confidence in that. You can rest assured in that. So Paul says we give thanks ever since we have heard of your faith. Two things he's heard about him, your faith in Jesus Christ. Faith means firm persuasion or conviction. Persuaded something is true and then acting on it. You really haven't had faith if faith hasn't changed your life. Faith has to have an object. The Jacksonville Jaguars are placing their faith in a new coach and Trevor Lawrence. Probably they'll have a better record this year than they did last year. It's just pr probable. They're not going to go 1-15. in 15. But what's the object of your faith? It's Jesus Christ. I used to say to people, you know, when you came in, you sat down in that chair. And I've never noticed anybody testing a chair out, but you're placing, are you placing your faith in the chair? In a sense, you are. It's really more trust than faith because faith is the evidence of things hoped for or the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But Paul's saying, I'm thankful for your faith in Jesus Christ. It, the object of your faith is in the right place. It's in Jesus Christ and nothing other than Jesus Christ. So make sure before you leave here today, your faith is not in a quarterback, a coach, your bank account, or even your health. 
You know, one greeting used to be after you tell somebody what's going on in your life, they say, well, at least you got your help. Well, that's been a struggle this last year, hasn't it? We're living in a pandemic. We're living in an age where some of our dear friends have passed on because of the virus. So where's your faith rooted? And the love you have for all the saints. The love you have for all the saints. Genuine faith always has a result. And one result is the love of the saints. What evidence do you see in your life that your faith is genuine? Let me read you just a caption. I get an email or a text every week from a friend of mine in Atlanta, Georgia, that prays for me. Sometimes twice a week I get a letter from him. And it's, his letters or his text always say, Lord, for me and Robert. So this is just a paragraph, part of his text. Give Robert and me welcoming, pleasant, considerate, and generous attitudes to everyone we encounter. I texted him back and said, thank you for praying because I'm struggling with that. Some people are hard to be pleasant around and welcoming and considerate and generous, and yet that is the hallmark of a believer, isn't it? That we would be that kind of person. So there's a guy in Atlanta, Georgia right now praying for me that that would be true about my life. So Paul has prayed for them, a very thankful prayer. And then last, and don't get too excited, we're not done because more verses here. The bulk of what I wanted us to touch on is, Paul says, because of the hope that is reserved for you in heaven. If you don't hear me say anything else today, I want you to hear this. If you're a child of God, there is a hope reserved for you in heaven, a place that cannot be stolen, it can't be molested, it can't be decayed. It's in the hands of God where God resides. It's already prepared, and it denotes certainty. In contrast to buy now and pay later, this is we've already paid. God paid, and the suffering we have, according to Romans 8, 18, Paul says, same author in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you have a hope if you're a child of God. Your hope is in heaven. Your hope is treasured. Your hope is laid up for you. The word laid up means reserved or to await, already prepared, denoting Certainty. And, and it's in heaven, the dwelling place of God. Listen, in heaven, nothing, human or otherwise, can touch the hope that we have. So take a breath in for just a minute and let that sink in. If you're a saint, we talked about how you're a saint, you're a child of God. If you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is a hope laid up for you in heaven that you can bank on with 100% certainty. It's not going anywhere. Nobody's going to steal it. It's going to be there when you get there, and it's already applied to your life. And Paul said, you've previously heard this. You've already heard this. I'm just reminding you. Now, why is Paul reminding them of their hope? Because this is the point the false teachers were attacking. The false teachers are attacking this to say, you know, yeah, you're a child of God. Maybe you've trusted Christ, but there's more you've got to add to that. Some of them were Judaizers that said, you've got to go back and do all of the Jewish laws that they had heaped on top of the laws of the Old Testament. Some of them were just pagans that were... The, the beginning, the seeds of what would eventually become Gnosticism that said, you know, heaven, heaven can't come to earth because earth is bad and heaven is separated from earth. Well, the truth of the gospel is what happened. God stepped out of heaven in the person of Jesus and came to earth and walked among them. Some of the Gnostics actually believed he never, his feet never totally touched earth. He just kind of floated above earth. Well, that's ridiculous. He came as one of us, born of a virgin, laid in a manger, lived a perfect life, when he was 30 years old, started calling disciples and taught for about three years, and he was crucified on a cross. That's the good news of the gospel. 
And so Paul said, you previously heard this. In fact, it's kind of like this. Have you ever received directions from somebody? You're, you're pulled up and you said, do you know how to get to so-and-so? Yeah, you go down here and take a left. And when you see the big stump, you take a right and you do this. And you start off on your directions. And can I be just real honest with you? Times I ask directions, I quit paying attention about halfway through. If there's too much to it, I just figure, well, I'll get started on this. And at some point, maybe I'll ask somebody else. Some of you have done that before where you kind of get started toward it and you start thinking, you're doubting, did that guy even know what he was talking about? This doesn't look like the right way. And then there's a sign. And the sign's pointing in the same direction you're going. And you realize, I am going the right way. That's what Paul was doing for this church. This church has placed their hope all in on Jesus Christ. And the false teachers, the heretics, were in their ear saying, that's not enough. You need to do more. Or he's not really, he doesn't really love you. Look at your life. How could he love someone like you? That's the enemy that Paul is combating, whether it be, and it, it all originates from the devil. would love to say nothing more to you than you're not loved by God, and the truth is you are. So the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, is near, is at hand, just as it is in all the world. The gospel has been spreading to the world. Listen just a few verses. Matthew 24, 14. Jesus speaking, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Did you know the gospel's worldwide? It's not just confined to the Bible Belt. It's not just confined to what we used to call a Christian nation in the United States. The gospel is being proclaimed all over the world, and it's growing. Romans 1.8, Paul says, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And then I love this one. Let this one sit with you a minute. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know if you're going to be surprised in heaven to see people from every corner of the, of the world. I'm not going to be surprised because the Bible tells us that's going to happen. The gospel is spreading. When you read Acts chapter 2, you hear about in the first century, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ on one day. 3,000. Later on in the book of Acts, 5,000 in one day come to faith in Christ. Then they quit counting. It's just multitude. They can't count them. There's so many coming to faith in Christ. Did that stop in the book of Acts? Have you ever had at your church where you go to in the off-season 3,000 people saved in one day? Has it ever happened since Acts that in one day 3,000 people were saved on planet Earth? The question is getting a little tougher now. Nobody's answering. At least I can't hear. How many of you believe? No, I'm not going to ask that. I'm not going to ask you embarrass yourself. Let me give you the good news. Thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ every day on planet Earth. The gospel is being proclaimed, and the gospel is reaching just like it did in the first century. Maybe only three or four at your church in this month. But you multiply that times what's happening around the world where thousands are coming to faith in Christ. Here's the good news about the gospel. It's doing exactly what Jesus said it would do. And the gates of heaven, gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Just as in all the world, in two things, it's constantly bearing fruit. And it's increasing. Even it has been doing since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Last thought, the gospel has been growing since the day you heard it. First century believers, it's been growing since the day you heard it. And it's all about grace. 
Paul's greeting at the beginning of this letter and really every letter he writes in the New Testament, grace from God, unearned favor. Every other religion has something else you've got to do. The Muslim faith believes there's five pillars, and, and it was in, interesting when somebody that was a Muslim explained their five pillars to me. It was just try to do this. If you're able to go to Mecca, you can, but if you can't, I'm like, who's determining whether you're able or not? Everything about it is work. Everything about it is what you do. And what does Jesus say? Jesus has come that we could have life. Steve quoted John 3.16. That's the hallmark of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. Here's the problem, people. Listen to me. Some of you still haven't accepted that. Some of you placed your faith in Jesus, and yet you still are thinking, I've got to do something to earn God's love. You don't. His love is free. His grace is is unmerited favor, is unearned favor, is receiving something you don't deserve. Now, let me, let me share the flip side of that with you. Some of you are thinking, well, all right, I'll just sit back and relax. Well, you can sit back and relax, but God's got a job for you. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says you've been saved by faith through grace. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any of you should boast. But then verse 10 says you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So how do we square that? Here's how you square it. You don't do things so that God loves you. You don't do things to earn God's favor. You do those things because God now dwells in you, and you do it because you love him and because he loves you. It's by grace you're saved, but he's got a plan for your life. You've heard me say it before. You're not to become a pew potato in church. We don't even have pews here anymore, so I guess this would be closer to couch potato. I said that one time in Sunday service here, and a lady walked up and said, Did you say perpetrator? I said, Well, I could have, but I didn't. I said pew potato. You know what a pupitate is? Wives, don't hit your husband right now, but it's where as long as you've got a remote control and something to drink, you're good to go. That's pupitate. Listen, as believers, that's not what God's calling us to either, but don't get them out of balance. You're saved by grace, and that is it. Add nothing to the cross, because anything you add to the cross becomes an enemy of the cross. But once you are saved, as long as you've got breath, God's got a plan for your life. God's got something for you to do. It may not be to stand up and preach a message. It may not be to play the piano. It may not be to lead worship, but it may be. But it may be something else. And your constant question needs to be, God, what are you calling me to? What have you got for me to do? So that's our hope. Our hope is filled and based on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Can you walk out of the door today in firm assurance that the hope is something you have? You can if you know Jesus. You don't have to go through life saying, I hope so. You can know so. Let's pray about that. Father, thank you for the truth of your word.